Welcome to Ask the Expert. It's a brief, informative, and lively discussion with experts in the type 1 diabetes um, research world. And also in, um, we're also talking with related uh, interdisciplinary researchers. We're recording this event. We're going to post it on the Sugar Science site um, and our YouTube channel shortly after the presentations. And if you have any questions for our guests, please feel free to enter them in the chat or raise your hand at the end of the presentation. Um, and today we have as our guest, uh, Dr. Teresa Mastrashi. She's an assistant professor in the De uh, Department of Biology of Indiana. She is a Canadian, um, but now living in Indiana. And I'm going to let her tell you a little bit about her career, but she has some really interesting uh, work, um, you know, that we're going to share today. And she also, just so you know, she um, was named one of the um, top under 40 and upcoming stars in biopharma research and business by Genetic Engineering News and was recognized as one of Indianapolis Business Journal 40 Under 40. Um, she also holds a prestigious career development award from JDRF as well as the coveted NIH R01 grant. And she just moved uh, in 2020 her lab to Department of Biology at IUPUI where she's expanding her research program. So welcome, um, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. My pleasure. Yeah. And I was, um, oops, so I'm just hoping um, that you might share a little bit of, uh, about your background with us so we can kind of orient ourselves. I'm sure. Uh, let me uh, share. Feel free to share your slides. So I do want to make, um, just before I start, uh, a land acknowledgement um, that, I, as you said, I'm, I'm coming to you from IUPUI, which stands on the historic homelands of the Miami, Potawatomi, and Shawnee people, as well as more recently, um, a vibrant Black community that was displaced. And so as the stewards of the land, currently we honor them all. And uh, my lab and I are, are very, very thankful to be able to work and study at IUPUI. Nice. So I want to also make a disclosure that this is my disclosure before any, <laughs> especially about my career, is that I have absolutely no special talents. <laughs> I am only unreasonably uh, persistent. And so I think that pretty much epitomizes my uh, my career path. Um, but as, as my... As Monica says, um, I'm from Canada originally, and I now think I have worked or studied in almost every time zone across North America. And I've lived now, obviously, in both Canada and the US. And so this is kind of a map breakdown of, of my journey. Uh, I did my undergraduate in at the University of Guelph in Canada. And then I did my PhD at the University of Toronto, so home to the, uh, the discovery of insulin. But interestingly, I was actually not uh, in diabetes research when I was there. I worked in breast cancer research. Uh, and that led to a small stint uh, at the BC Cancer Research Center in Vancouver, um, where I also did some breast cancer work before starting my postdoc, which uh, started at the University of Colorado in Denver. And then we moved the lab to uh, Manhattan at Columbia University. Uh, and from there, I was recruited to, uh, to the Indiana University School of Medicine. And as of 2012, I, I've been in Indianapolis and I've had a few different roles. So I started off as an assistant research professor and then became independent and started my own group as the first scientist at the IBRI, which is a, a private research institute in town here. Um, and just last year, as Monica said, I moved um, I moved to the Indiana University, Purdue University of Indianapolis campus, and I joined the Department of Biology. And I now have an assistant professor tenure track position here. So Fantastic. I've tried it all. <laughs> 
and I've landed here and uh, the lab and I uh, are, are pretty happy to be continuing to do the work that we do in this really, really uh, nurturing environment at IEPUI. So uh, it's also meant, I guess, I've, I've worn a bunch of hats and I've worked in a bunch of areas. So it's sort of been an involving expertise, which when I had to add it up was 26 years. <laughs> It makes me feel very old, um, but I've worked in every potential model. So I'm going to show you some zebrafish. I've worked with mice. I've worked with human cells, human tissues, uh, and I've really run the gamut of direct molecular biology, genetics, uh, development, and now we're doing some postnatal metabolism as well. So um, yeah, that's that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> but where we've landed is uh, on really the exocrine pancreas, and so thank you, Monica, for the the invitation to talk about that today. Yeah, the exocrine pancreas is now coming into um, view, I think, for a lot of scientists. It's, um, you know, it's been sort of an, an accessory or an aside in terms of type 1 diabetes. And I'm interested to hear uh, your perspective, your work, and then maybe we could uh, talk a little bit about, you know, sort of the background. I mean, just in sort of reading a little bit, uh, in 2015, Martha Campbell Thompson, right, was talking about that there were records abnormalities in the exocrine pancreas and type 1 diabetes and their records from 1940s onward showed that yes yet, right so so yeah so so dive right in yeah you know absolutely um and i i think martha's work is some of the work i'm going to highlight today uh because i think she really has been quite a pioneer uh in this area um but I guess to, to orient everyone, if you're not familiar with the exocrine pancreas, so this, this is a slice of pancreas that has been stained with uh, hematoxylin and eosin. It's looking at, as well as insulin, um, and it's looking at sort of just a general overview uh, of what a piece of pancreas would look like. And I think probably most people in the islet biology field focus on the little red or the little pink uh, circles, right? So the islets. But what we're coming to see is that there, there is other tissue out there and that other tissue is not just where the islets live, but rather it's actually potentially affecting how the islets function and interacting with them at many different levels. Um, so if you look at a cellular level of the exocrine, it's actually composed of three different types of cells. So this is a schematic of an acinus. And so the acinar cells are part of the acinus as are the central acinar cells and then the duct cells. And so the, the exocrine pancreas has a function unto itself, um, quite critical in metabolism, quite critical in digestion because digestive enzymes are made as proenzymes by the exocrine pancreas cells or the acinar cells. They're secreted into the ducts within the pancreas that feed into the intestine and they there, the, the enzymes are actually processed and the processed enzymes now become functional and they aid in our digestion. So really quite critical function of the, of the exocrine pancreas unto itself, in addition to housing the islets. Um, but one thing that I think has, at least for me, started me thinking about the exocrine having its own direct impact on disease are a lot of the studies that we've looked at related to exocrine disease and how it actually does have an endocrine impact, right? So if you look at studies of acute or chronic pancreatitis, uh, cystic fibrosis, or exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, these are really devastating diseases that people have that affect their exocrine pancreas. Um, and cystic fibrosis in particular has a really, really dramatic exocrine phenotype. What's unique, not unique actually, what's, what's uh, uh, same, like, 
similar to all of these diseases is that some people that have them will go on to have diabetes. And so it starts us thinking about this idea of crosstalk. Mm-hmm. And if you have a, a dysfunction or uh, an injury in the exocrine pancreas, could it have an impact on what surrounds it and what surrounds the exocrine pancreas, but the, the islets? So uh, in addition to this idea of crosstalk, which is really the the focus of most of the work in my lab now, we also look at these studies of the exocrine pancreas for the inverse. There's a group of people who have these exocrine pancreatic disorders who don't have diabetes. And so to me, that's equally as interesting. What saves those islets as opposed to the people where they actually do end up with with the development of diabetes? we're looking at it from both angles. How, but in general, how does the exocrine kind of contribute to endocrine disorder? Um, so yeah, so it brings us to type one diabetes and the work that you were talking about, Monica, really the, the work from Martha Campbell Thompson's group, uh, I, I would say can be um, sort of put as a milestone for exocrine pancreas research in the area of type one diabetes. And this small little graph on the right, sums up a lot of what uh, I think the biggest point is, is that individuals with type 1 diabetes have low pancreatic volume. And given that the exocrine pancreas is about 95% of your pancreatic volume, we can make the assumption that uh, this is actually probably a reduction in the, the exocrine pancreas. What's also interesting in this graph are the purple and blue, uh, the other purple and blue bars, which are the uh, first degree relatives or single and multiple autoantibody positive individuals. They also have smaller pancreatic volume. So one of the thoughts that came out of this work is could we use exocrine pancreas volume or pancreas volume as a non-invasive biomarker of disease? And I think it's something we haven't ruled out yet. um, And it's something that should continue to be considered. And so a a follow-up study to that, also looking at tissue from donors with diabetes, a a lot of this work made possible because of the NPOD consortium. And, you know, these, we as scientists, uh, even before this pandemic, I I pretty much think I can speak for all of us in saying that we don't see borders, right? We we collaborate with people everywhere across the world. um, And then resources like the the network of pancreatic organ donors with diabetes has really helped to even facilitate that more providing resources now that everybody can tap into so it's it's yeah and i mean obviously very thankful to the donors who've made it possible that allow us to to study their their tissue uh post-mortem so this was another study again using that pancreata and not only did they find this reduced exocrine mass which is showed in this bar over here in people with type 1 diabetes but they actually went to a cellular level and looked at the size of the acinar cells and there the size wasn't any different. Somebody with diabetes and somebody without diabetes, they, they didn't show a difference in the size of their acinar cells, but rather they actually had fewer cells if you had diabetes. Um, there's also a, a larger degree of uh, fibrosis and so other tissue alterations that, that they saw. Um, and so then this speaks to the question of chicken or egg, right? What comes first? Do we have a, a defect in uh, the growth of the exocrine pancreas and that somehow impacts endocrine go- growth or you know, creates maybe a less hospitable environment for the islets in, in which they grow? Um, and some of those questions can be answered with mouse models, which I know in the area of type one diabetes, mouse models are a, a bit of a, you know, there's, there's people in both camps. I am a big proponent of mice and actually all animal models and what they can teach us. Um, but I think we can actually take some really interesting, uh, can make some conclusions from from most models that not in particular, is that we have 
three models right here, the Nod mouse, the Akita mouse, and then this is a model of ablation of beta cells where we see insulin deficiency is the phenotype in these mice. When you look at their pancreatic volume though, it's absolutely similar to the controls. Mm -hmm. So this would suggest that maybe loss of insulin alone doesn't lead to a reduction in pancreatic weight. So perhaps this reduction in pancreatic weight that we're seeing in these you know, uh, human subjects or in, in human tissue is an aspect of the disease unto itself. Um, and so just something to consider, obviously mouse and human we know are different, but you know, all new little you know, pieces of the puzzle that we're sort of putting together. Um, so what, what led us to our work? Uh, well, we also, um, similar to the study that, that Martha's group put out in 2015, uh, we put out our first study, first study in 2015 where it kind of drew the attention to the exocrine. And for this, like I said, I am, I am agnostic when it comes to animal models. We use the model that is right for the question. And so here we used a zebrafish model to be able to study exocrine pancreas. Well, I will say, surprisingly, we were studying exocrine pancreas. It's not what we went into it thinking we were going to be studying. Um, but yeah, so these are fish that were treated with an inhibitor, difluoromethylornithine or DFMO. And what we saw, the most dramatic phenotype that these fish showed us was that their pancreas was about half the size. So when we inhibited this pathway called polyamine biosynthesis, we actually affected how the exocrine pancreas grows. And so most people are probably not familiar with uh, the polyamine biosynthesis or hypocene biosynthesis. These are what my lab studies, two pathways my lab studies. So polyamines are molecules that are found in every cell and spermidine is one of those molecules. Uh, and so the production of spermidine is inhibited when you use DFMO because you're inhibiting sort of the upstream part of that pathway. You're inhibiting an en enzyme that starts the cascade of, of making polyamines in the cell. And why spermidine is really important is that spermidine is used as a cofactor to post-translationally modify uh, a eukaryotic um, mRNA translation factor, which we call EIF5A. And so it's a protein that is involved in making other proteins or protein synthesis, uh, but it doesn't function if, if it doesn't have that um, that post-translational modification. And it's a really odd <laughs> post-translational modification. Most people don't know it. It's called hypocene. It's a, it's a modified amino acid. And in order to make hypocene, you have to have these two enzymes, deoxyhypocene synthase and deoxyhypocene hydroxylase. So what we did in this fish study is kind of hit it at the most upstream part, an enzyme that feeds the spermidine into this pathway. And we did in the study, we also looked at this enzyme itself, DHPS, and we saw the exact same phenotype. So whether you hit the enzyme or whether we, you know, and hit, hit something upstream that affects this pathway, we're seeing this reduction in the exocrine pancreas. And so that led us down the path. We've now since, and this is our most recently published work just this year, we've, we've recreated some of this in a mouse model so we can ask even greater questions, understand metabolism, understand, you know, in a mammalian system, you know, how do the cells actually, how are they actually affected at many stages? Um, and so to give you sort of the, the you know, study in, in a nutshell, we ended up um, genetically knocking out uh, the enzyme deoxyhypocene synthase, and we ended up with these tiny little mutant mice. So these animals are actually the same age. This is a litter mate control. The, uh, the mutant has deoxyhypocene synthase, or the, the enzyme is normal everywhere in the body except the pancreas. Mm -hmm. So we the deletion just to the pancreas. 
Right. What we saw was this growth defect, uh, early early survival loss of survival. So they they died about six weeks of age, and we saw this dramatic reduction in exocrine pancreas size. The islets absolutely spared. Um, they have they even functioned. Uh, but we have this dramatic loss of, of the exocrine. And so knowing that deoxyhypocene synthase is important in modifying that translation factor, we went the route of saying at the cellular level, what are the proteins that are being affected by this? Because uh, that uh, this enzyme is important in, in making proteins. And we saw that there was a, a very large number of proteins that were downregulated as a result of loss of, of the enzyme and hypocene biosynthesis. And all of them relate to exocrine pancreas function, exocrine pancreas development. So we've been able to link this really critical uh, translation factor to the development and growth and function of the exocrine. And we're also now, we've expanded the studies, obviously. We're looking at its role in islet development. We're looking at the role in how this loss of exocrine is impacting how the islets function, how the islets grow. Um, and we're sort of finding some interesting things that these are not two isolated parts of this organ, but rather they may in fact uh, quite affect each other uh, significantly at, at many different stages. Um, we've also published a study last year that touched on the exact same idea of targeting polyamine biosynthesis and targeting uh, its role in, now this case, the beta cell and in disease. But um, we, we looked at it in the setting of regeneration so we've, we've shown has a really important function in the exocrine and we're, we're looking at how that has the crosstalk with the beta cells. But this was looking at it actually in the setting of disease. So we were able to uh, use a fish model. Fish model we use is, well, we're trying to mimic type one diabetes. Well, I will say the only real phenotype it has related to uh, what we see with type one diabetes is that we have a loss of beta cells. So the immune component to that, we can't really study with this model, but we were going after understanding how targeting this pathway can affect uh, beta cell growth. And so our model, like I said, uses the fish. We allow the fish to grow to a place where they have islets that are functioning, have beta cells. So that's everything in green. And then we, ablate the beta cells, so we take them out. It actually does, you can you can measure sort of blood glucose, <laughs> we're gonna call it that, in fish. Uh, we, we measure free glucose in fish, um, and they actually do have a, a massive spike in their free glucose uh, when we take out the beta cells. What we're able to do then is fish naturally regenerate, and so they will resolve this sort of diabetic state uh, on their own. What we do is add drugs into the system. So we actually put drugs into the water that the, the fish are growing in, and we see how it affects the growth of their beta cells. Does it happen faster? And we use that drug DFMO, which we saw at uh, early embryonic stages does affect how the exocrine pancreas grows. But here in the setting of beta cell regeneration, it actually helps the beta cells grow back. So if we look at this graph, we're seeing the red, the red dots are those of uh, the, the numbers of beta cells that we're counting in the setting of DFMO treated, you know, our, our diabetic fish. Um, and we're seeing that the, the cells grow back at a greater rate than uh, an animal that's just allowed to regenerate on its own without any DFMO. And it really brings us back to the level of, of beta cell uh, mass that you see in a fish that's developing normal, uh, normally. So this was a really, it was a very small study. It was a very pointed study. We, we published it in this great little journal called Islets. Um, and it's one that I think is pointing out something else, you know, that 
Things that are important in the exocrine pancreas can also have a function in the endocrine. And in the setting of disease, you have a whole different ballgame, right? Something that may cause and function to allow for growth of the exocrine in the embryonic stage naturally. Maybe in the setting of disease, we can exploit that to help grow back cells. You know, again, this is a fish. We've only ever done this in a fish. Um, but it's an interesting target because DFMO is actually a, a, a drug that's being um, studied in a clinical trial here at, at IU um, in people with uh, new onset type 1 diabetes. So we're hoping all of this is going to lead us somewhere. Yeah, so and I would also comment that these pathways are highly conserved, right? So that does, it's not just like, you know, way off track. <laughs> No, no, yeah, absolutely. This is really why we're able to, to use animal models in general, because yeah. much um, kind of, you know, crosstalk between animals and, and people in terms of the genetics. So where I think we're left is with a bunch of open questions, you know, does the exocrine pancreas growth and development, is it influencing the beta cell growth and development? Could exocrine dysfunction play a role in pathogenesis? You know, this is something that's still kind of open. Um, is there... Uh, is exocrine pancreas damage caused by the same pathogenic events that cause beta cell destruction? And these are all things that we don't know. Um, and so these are areas that we're hoping to kind of be able to answer um, or, or questions we're hoping to be able to answer with some of the work that we're currently doing. Yeah. Fantastic. No, this is, this is really interesting. You're right. I'm, I, I feel like Again, once again, Indiana is just right in the frontier of what's going on. Um, I'm just a huge fan of Indiana. Yeah, um, no, it's, it's an incredible environment to work. Anybody who's looking for a, a postdoc position out there, and I know there are multiple investigators looking, so. Yeah, fantastic. Everything's opening up again, and, and um, you know, hopefully uh, the wheels will start churning again. Um, so I just wanted to open it up to people who are here in the audience. I see a lot of... Um, familiar um, names, but also some new people. And is there anyone who'd like to ask a question um, to Teresa? I mean, she's she's got a wealth of knowledge here. Should you um, want to ask? Don't be shy. <laughs> okay, no one. All right. Or just put your put it, put your message in the chat and we'll ask. I'll ask it. Um, I have a quite I have a couple questions. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about Mikey Sanders, her new published paper, um, January, 2021, large-scale genetic association and single-cell accessible chromatin mapping defines cell type-specific mechanisms of T1D risk, huge paper. Um, they basically, is a big GWAS paper. But what I thought was really interesting is they found um, that there was a high probability of T1D risk variants and multiple signals mapped to exocrine, specifically CCREs, um, including uh, at CFTR, which uh, I think some people know here that CFTR is um, cystic fibrosis transporter. And that is uh, really interesting. And I, I don't know if you wanna expound on that a little bit it, because it, the, that variant maps in the ductal specific um, region, right? So in there, the, the risk allele results in reduced transcription factor binding, reduced enhancer activity, reduced CFDR expression in the ductal cells, which is part of the uh, exocrine pancreas. Yeah, I know ex exactly. Um, I think it's I think it's a really beautiful study, and I think it it sort of brings home <laughs> this whole idea that uh, that the the islets aren't alone. Yeah. Um, the disease really does exist in probably all cells in, in the pancreas, right? We can't make the assumption that it's, that it's just the islets that are somehow being affected. 
Um, and I, I mean, I think it's it's now pointed us in the direction of what a potential mechanism is, right? If we're seeing these this regulatory elements that are, you know, tracking with risk alleles, then could it be that those are genes that may contribute to the, the phenotype? And we know from the, the models of cystic fibrosis in animals, or the mouse actually isn't a great one. It's more the ferret and the, I think the pig that are used. And those have a massive exocrine phenotype where you see this kind of loss of exocrine mass altogether. Uh, and like I said at the outset, there are, even those animals will progress to, to diabetes. So I think it's showing us that if you have dysfunction in one, you can have indirect effects on cells in the other parts of the pancreas. Yeah. Uh, no, I was going to say like, you know, I mean, on the physiological front, it would kind of be, you, you could kind of, it would be a little suggested, this GWAS signal could be suggested like of reduced CFTR expression. You can correlate that with susceptibility to chronic blockage of the pancreatic duct and maybe like a low grade pancreatitis. And maybe that's the start, who knows? I mean, at least what, maybe one path. I mean, there's, you know, as we know, there's, it's very heterogeneous disease. Yeah, it, it very well could be. There are um, a lot of the most models where you see the exocrine dysfunction, the acinar dysfunction and the acinar loss, you actually do see ducts that are also affected. Um, so it is an area that we're also looking into when we ablate the exocrine pancreas, for example, how does that affect, how does that affect the ducts? And that's an active point of investigation here um, because yeah. it's again, not just islets that might be affected, but rather the entire ductal system. Yeah. I mean, it's really going to be interesting to follow that smoking gun. I wonder um, if you might want to comment a little bit about uh, the discoveries with the DHPS and the uh, EIF5A and relate, if you can, to Anil Bouchon and Peter Thompson's really interesting studies regarding senescence of the beta cells. Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, we talked about this a little bit before um, we started the, the webinar, but it's we're kind of in a, a little bit of an unknown at the moment. We uh, there there are people now that we've identified. So a couple of years ago, we identified a new disease where patients with uh, mutations in DHPS um, have, have quite a significant disease. We, we don't know much about what happens um, when you have those mutations in DHPS, what happens to your metabolism, what happens to um, pancreatic function. So we're using mouse models to be able to explore that because the individuals that have this disease, um, they're, they're young. And so we're going to try to, to study what happens when you age with that disease um, in animals. Uh, so what happens to the beta cells? We don't actually know. Uh, there was a study that was that was published by uh, Ragu Mirmira's group um, that looked at DHPS in the postnatal islet, and they did link it there to when you lose DHPS, you actually lose the ability to proliferate. So in certain animal models, there is a, a proliferative compensation when you have altered metabolism. Um, and that was lost when DHPS was taken out of the islet. So we're also looking at islets and DHPS, and we're looking at it from obviously the perspective of growth and development. If we yeah. take right early in, in development of the beta cell, how does that affect beta cell development? How does it affect beta cell growth? And unfortunately, we don't know yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, again, there's a lot of work to be done, sort of exciting times. Um, I wanted to just circle back to the DFMO sort of trial you just sort of touched on that's happening at Indiana. Um, can you can you illustrate that a little bit or talk about it a little more? And you know who's doing it? Is it open? Um, is it you know recruiting or what's happening? 
I believe it's closed at the moment. Uh, I'm, and I believe the, the study will have its results um, put out soon. Um, so I am not actually aware of, of what's happened with it. I know that it was a study that uh, I'm not aware of what happened with the results of it. It was a study that um, was looking at uh, doses and the effect of different doses of DFMO in people with new onset type 1 diabetes. It's being led by Linda DeMeglio, mm -hmm. um, a powerhouse. In, yeah. in, uh, she's, uh, she's directing quite a few of the trials that are run here. Um, it was spurred on by work that was done, um, some of it by my group, some of it by Reg Ramirez group, um, a lot of it showing that when you, uh, I think probably the main thing, when you treat animals with DFMO, if they have type 1 diabetes, uh, you have a reduced incidence of type 1 diabetes in mice. Um, so the DFMO was having sort of protect protective effect, if you can call it that. And so this was the first trial to really explore, could DFMO be a potential um, um, drug that could uh, possibly spare uh, the islet some dysfunction or some dismay. Yeah, uh, and even like, you know, I mean, even, even prolonging remission, because it does seem the sort of the regression of the disease now is showing itself, like maybe there's one hit and then there's a remission and then the second hit in some people and then another remission and then finally, um, succumbing to type one. And I think that drugs like that, and especially and other drugs like diplomazab, um, you know, the prevention bio is putting forward. It, uh, even extending that window is very important um, because the quality of life, um, you know, uh, is you can't, you can't, you can't um, put a number on it. I mean, if you could extend it for a few years, even a, even one year is, is important in terms of the, uh, the person's life. Um, I and I think like the no no one drug is going to be a, a miracle cure. I yeah. mean that all of you sum up all of the work in the field so far. No one gene, no one drug is is going to have you know that dramatic effect on type one diabetes that we wish that we could we could find. Yeah, I think we need to explore all avenues, and that's really like having multidisciplinary groups that are studying you know growth and development, postnatal metabolism you know, interventions, I think it's giving us this constellation of effects. What, and how do we put it all together, right? Like it helps us understand so many different aspects of the disease or even aspects of, you know, how the pancreas itself grows and functions in the first place. You know, we don't have all those answers. Um, so I, I wouldn't want to discount or discredit any one particular avenue of research or, or potential help. Um, to oh, some degree. I loved how you said constellation of effects. And I do think that because it's a multifactorial disease and very heterogeneous, and there's many different um, research types of research that look at them. There's the GWAS people, there's, you know, um, hardcore cell bio, et cetera. So I think these kind of conversations can kind of maybe, you don't know what it might trigger, just even a conversation with somebody in a different discipline. And as you said, the constellation of effects. Yeah. Uh, it's a constellation of researchers too. And, and it's, it's great to, it's, uh, it's great to have you here today. I, I I'm seeing in the chat, a lot of accolades for this talk oh, and, and for your work. <laughs> so um, I mean, we don't do it alone. It's, it's my lab that's doing this and, and wonderful collaborators and colleagues. And, and I think I agree with you that, you know, it's, it's really important to make sure that all voices are heard yes. and the, those 
I, I respect all of my colleagues that have differing opinions because I do think that does help us, you know, uh, think about our studies differently sometimes. But I, I would just hope that no one voice ever kind of drowns out the rest of us um, because it, it's really important to make sure that we're considering all angles of the disease, things that we didn't even think about studying today or yesterday, we, you know, we, we could potentially study today and could help us understand. So. Absolutely. You said it absolutely perfectly. Um, well, if there's no other questions, thank you so much for talking with us today. And um, we just, you know, can't wait to see what you do next. Um, we've got uh, just, a, as I said, um, a, a really, just a real um, footprint here in this new frontier. And um, it's great to see what you're doing. And thanks for sharing. Thank you. Thank you, Monica, for the, the opportunity. I appreciate it. Thank you. Talk again soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.